1: Your host is Jessica Piro. In today's program, we will provide awareness and education on various types of crises, the impact they have on one's well-being, and provide help to empower hope for you or someone you love. This program will help you understand various types of crisis situations by hearing from experts in the crisis response field, as well as those with lived experience through a difficult time. Now, here's Jessica Pirro.
2: Hello, everyone, and thank you so much for tuning in today. You are listening to The Journey, Stories of Crisis and Hope. And my goal every week um, is to bring you uh, conversations that really make us think um, and also give us a a sense of uh, responsibility and a role that we can play to help others um, in need in our community. So I come to you live every week from Buffalo, New York, where I serve as the CEO of our crisis center here, uh, Crisis Service. Um, and every day um, on our hotline and our different services that are provided by crisis centers across the country, there's various issues that um, we deal with. And one issue that was is today's topic is talking about the issue of child abuse. So let me give you a little bit of a backdrop to that. Um, our goal of our conversation today is talking about the community's response to the immediate and long-term impacts of child abuse and neglect. So child abuse and neglect can have a lifelong implications for their victims. Physical abuse, emotional maltreatment, sexual abuse, and abandonment are a few examples of the things children experience at the hands of those that are supposed to be responsible for them, either their parents, their family members, or other adults in their life. And while the physical wounds may heal, there can be long term consequences if the trauma of the abuse and neglect is not recognized and addressed. Children who are maltreated are at risk for delayed cognitive, nervous system, and immune system development, putting children who've been maltreated at a higher risk for physical and mental health problems as adults. So this show, we're going to be exploring various types of child abuse, talking about warning signs, the different types of response services available um, to help children and their families to help end the cycle of of abuse um, in that family um, and to protect that child. So before I introduce my guest, I want to just remind uh, all the listeners that if you do have any questions during the show, you can email me at jpirovoiceamerica@gmail.com. at gmail.com. That is i r r o at gmail.com. So please take a few minutes to send us a question. We love to hear what's on your mind um, as we discuss this topic. So I want to welcome my guest today. My guest is Greg Flett, and he is the Project Outreach Coordinator for the Northeast Regional Children's Advocacy Center. So let me give you a little background about Greg. Greg has over 15 years of experience working with children serving not profit organizations throughout the U.S. Greg has a master's degree degree in clinical social work from Fordham University and a bachelor's degree in sociology from Villanova University. Greg has served as program director of the Child Advocacy Center in Nassau County, New York, and is the executive director of and as the executive director of the CAC in Boulder, Colorado. Greg has worked closely with multidisciplinary teams across the country to improve the collaborative response to child abuse and neglect, with a focus on reducing trauma and improving outcomes for children and their families. From 2011 to 2014, Greg served as the Associate Director of the Indigenous Education Foundation of Tanzania, supporting efforts to provide secondary to education to impoverished youth in rural East Africa. And in his current capacity, Greg serves as the Outreach Coordinator for the Northeast Regional Children's Advocacy Center, providing training, technical assistance, consulting, and supporting child advocacy advocacy centers and multidisciplinary teams throughout the Northeast. And Greg has a strong interest in supporting the multidisciplinary teams to work more collaboratively and cooperatively by improving communication, clarifying roles, and developing partnerships to accomplish shared goals. And we'll be talking a lot about that throughout the show. So, Greg, thank you so much for for tuning, uh, for joining me today um, on this very important conversation around child abuse. Thank you,
3: Jessica. I appreciate you having me on.
2: So I think right off the bat, I think it's important to kind of give a, just a baseline understanding of the topic. Um, and so the first thing I think if, if you could share with our listeners is just kind of talking about what is child abuse and maybe the different types of abuse that um, children experience.
3: Sure, absolutely. Um, and, you know, I'll start by, by thanking you again. This is one of those things that people don't really like to talk about. And I think right. even just a conversation like this helps to increase awareness and understanding um, child abuse, you know, there's, there's lots of definitions, but there is one single federal definition that, that basically says that child abuse is any act or failure to act on the part of a parent or caretaker or anyone responsible for the health and well-being of a child, which results in harm to that child, or even just the imminent risk of harm or serious injury. And that can be a physical injury, an emotional injury, um, obviously sexual abuse and exploitation are included in that definition as well. Um, and I think...
2: Oh, go, ahead, sorry, go ahead, sorry, Jessica. No, and I just wanted to say, I think under the sexual abuse piece, um, and we'll, we'll, maybe we'll talk about that, especially with the role the CACs play, um, is just an understanding of how that can occur a little bit, um, because there's such a process that we see with children um, who are really groomed for a while before the abuse happens, and you know maybe we can touch on that a little bit later um, on in the show, but I just I feel like that's such an important piece for people to understand as well.
3: Yeah, sexual abuse is, is the type of abuse that we see at TACs most frequently. It's the type of abuse that often is underreported, underrecognized. Um, people either have a limited awareness or understanding of it, or if, if they do know what it is, it's a really touchy topic. It's a hard thing for people to talk openly about. Um, so being aware of the, the signs and symptoms, even just knowing what it is is an important thing. Um, when we think about sexual abuse, we have a really simple definition. It's the act of engaging in sexual activity with a child. It mm-hmm. has nothing to do with consent. It has nothing to do um, with, you know, the interaction with that child. If you're engaging in a sexual act with a child, that is clearly abuse.
2: Right. Right, absolutely. So maybe we could talk a little bit about the signs and symptoms to look for um, to help a child that you think may be being abused. So what are some signs and symptoms people could be looking for?
3: Yeah, and there's a lot of them, and, and some of them are subtle. Some of them are, are, are right out there. Um, physical abuse, I think, is the type of abuse that most people are most aware of, and obviously that that can present with signs of of medical injuries, bruising, uh, broken bones, depending on the severity, Um, things that are physically obvious um, that a child may present with. But then there are also some um, more subtle indications of abuse, children who are withdrawn or um, maybe um, somewhat tentative of interacting with adults, Um, children who seem vigilant or or hypervigilant, always kind of cancer on edge, are all symptoms of, of any type of child abuse, um, but mostly um, ones that we associate with with physical abuse. Um, with sexual abuse, that's where it gets a little bit more difficult. Um, it, it can range from, you know, again, physical signs and symptoms, but sometimes those aren't as readily seen. Um, but you can see maybe behavioral changes. Changes. Um, kids who are uh, hesitant to uh, change for gym class, kids who maybe don't want to participate in physical activities with adults like they once used to, um, bedwetting, nightmares, um, changes in behavior like that could also be indicators of sexual abuse.
2: And I think it's interesting, the point about bedwetting and, and nightmares, you might, is it true that you might see some regression and maybe developmentally uh, kind of, or, you know, benchmarks that a child might be at that if they are abused, do you do you see yes, that absolutely. as an indicator?
3: Absolutely. Any significant change in a child's behavior, certainly one that shows regression or, yeah, kind of drifting back to an earlier developmental stage would be a warning sign or, or a concern. Um, one of the, the biggest um, indicators of sexual abuse, too, is awareness of sexual activities that's beyond the normal age of the child. So if a five- or a six-year-old is, um, you know, participating in, in a, a play or a, a modeled sexual activity that's clearly beyond something that they should have knowledge of, that's a sign that something has happened or something might be happening that you would want, want to look into.
2: Absolutely. So maybe we could talk a little bit about the long-term effects of child abuse, child sexual abuse. I mean, one of the things that I think is really critical um, for adults and caregivers to understand is that the trauma that a child experiences has such an impact on the path that is going to develop into their adulthood. um, And that trauma can really um, have significant um, impacts, uh, impacts on them. So can you talk a little bit about what are some of those long-term effects that we see in kids that are abused?
3: Yeah, absolutely. Um, <clears throat> and, and it's a really great, important question. There was actually a fascinating study done um, called the ACE Study. It stands for Adverse Childhood Experiences. Um, and essentially what it did was it took a look at a group of people and and ask them questions about their childhood and what types of trauma they experience in their childhood with particular focus on ten types of trauma, five of which were abuse, um, physical abuse, neglect, sexual abuse, Um, and then it uh, it took into account a few other traumatic experiences that a child might have including domestic violence, substance abuse within the home, um, um, interaction with people with mental illness. And when it compared those childhood experiences to people's present-day health outcomes and social problems, they found that there was a tremendous association between those young young experiences as a kid and the outcomes for them as adults. And they had all kinds of links to um, later outcomes in life that were basically associated with those negative experiences mm-hmm. um, when, when the, that they had when they were kids. Um, so it was a really interesting study. The study showed that, that a lot of people, 28% of people in the study reported physical abuse. 21% re- reported sexual abuse, um, and they they saw a huge number of people who uh, were reporting this abuse, and when they looked at their lifestyles, their health, um, things that that were impacting them later in life, they could draw a lot of connections. Um, and it was it was shown that that this abuse, these childhood experiences, were having a profound impact on the rest of their life. Things like health outcomes, um, risk for uh, high risk behavior, smoking, alcoholism, severe obesity, all correlated with. Um, uh, abuse or, or exposure to trauma, trauma as a kid, um, negative health outcomes, including depression, um, coronary disease, cancer, even were connected to it. It was a really amazing study that they were able to draw as many links um, right. to to abuse and neglect and these traumatic experiences. Um, it's a study that gets talked about more and more, but it was done in the early 90s. And so we're, we're hoping to kind of have people be a m- much more aware that a child abuse experience is not an isolated incident. It has ramifications for that child throughout the rest of their life and clearly has community implications as well. It, it impacts everybody.
2: Absolutely, absolutely. And I think what's interesting about the ACE study as well is that it, that population that was, that was part of that study really was a, um, a variety of individuals. So a lot of times when we talk about various issues, we might have stereotypes of who we think are impacted by these issues. But really, when we're talking about child abuse, child sexual abuse, um, it doesn't discriminate in regards to race, to se- socioeconomic um, stature. I, I mean, I think it, it's important that we say that because a lot of times we can kind of view, you know, sometimes in society it's viewed like it's them or it's this other community when it could could be your neighbor next door, and we really want people to just be aware um, that these issues happen, you know, across the board.
3: Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, we see in the CACs all the time people from all walks of life. And like you said, it doesn't just stay in certain communities or certain races, um, even geographic areas throughout the country, people make assumptions that child abuse may take place more in rural areas than urban areas, um, and that's not not the case that we found. It, like you said, it doesn't discriminate. It it finds its way um, into all communities, um, and something Absolutely. to be aware of.
2: Mm-hmm. So, can we talk a little bit about who is responsible for reporting child abuse. I know that obviously um, there's mandatory uh, reporters, if you will. But uh, you know, when you think of responsibility of reporting this, who who would be that those people to report a concern? Yeah,
3: and it's a great question. They're so. There's something called a mandated reporter, and, and most, if not all states, have uh, laws that require certain professionals to report abuse when they, when they suspect it. And so, you know, you can think of um, anybody within the educational system, teachers, guidance counselors, school nurses are all required to report. Anybody within the medical community, nurses, doctors, um, law enforcement officials, um, certain um, camp counselors, coaches, things. Uh, people like that, really anybody who's trusted or entrusted with the protection of a child as part of their professional capacity um, has the the obligation to, to make a report. Um, and it's interesting, a lot of times people think that a mandated reporter has to have proof or, or evidence um, of the, of the abuse, that it actually took place. And and what what the statute says is that it just needs to be a reasonable suspicion to have reasonable information to suggest um, or suspect that a child might be abused. That triggers the mandated uh, obligation to, to make a report, to call it in
2: and and that also could be i mean even though there's the mandated reporter requirements a neighbor or a friend or somebody that's concerned like you said if there's suspicion that's enough to at least make a call to consult if if this is a report that will potentially be taken which we'll we'll be getting into a little bit more detail um into that process but i'm just i just want to kind of make sure that the, the listeners understand that I guess we all have a responsibility if we're suspecting it, that we should make that call. What what are your thoughts?
3: Absolutely. And I think you said it best. Um, we all have the responsibility. You know, there's that saying that it takes a village to raise a child. You know, when it comes to a child, they need as much Vigilance, as much protection as we can offer them, and the community really does have an obligation to, if they see something that they suspect, to call it in. Um, the the uh, the goal really being is to make sure that no child is you know being abused out there. And and what we see a lot of times is. The reports that we get are from people who have, you know, more intimate knowledge of a child than, say, a law enforcement officer or something like that. It's, a, it's you know, it's a aunt or an uncle who suspects something or someone who has contact with a child, maybe a babysitter, who, you know, just doesn't think something's right and, and makes a call. It's people who are going to have close contact with the child that can sometimes pick up on those more subtle cues that I was talking about earlier.
2: Absolutely. And, you know, we'll, um, we're we going to be heading uh, shortly into break here, but I think, um, you know, one of the things we'll maybe touch on as we start the second segment is just talking a little bit about that process so people have a better understanding, because I know that I'm sure a family member or a neighbor might have some reservations of kind of getting involved in family business, if you will. And I think we have to learn that uh, in order to to protect children, we all have to take care of them. Like you said, it does take a, a village to care for them. Um, and I, you know, I think it's important for people to know um, that responsibility does lie with us as adults to really care for our children, all children, um, in our communities. And and um, so, you know, we'll definitely talk a little bit more about that as as we get into the second segment. So before um, before we head into break, I do want to just share because this is obviously a, a national uh, show. I always like to share a. Resource for people to look into. And so there is a a website called childhelp.org. And there's also a 1 800 number, which is 1 800 for a child, which is 1 800 422. 4453. And this is a 24 hour um, line that you can call that has hotline counselors available for information, uh, literature information, referrals uh, to uh, your emergency social services in your community, um, and also support resources. And we're going to talk a little bit about that in the show as well of how important it is for us to also help the parents um, who are having a hard time and struggling with caring for their children and what role we could be playing as well as protecting the child. supporting others who are struggling um, to be parents, um, you know, in, in their community. So again, um, if you'd like to check out this information while we're talking throughout the show, the website is childhelp.org and the phone number is one 800 a child one 422 4453 So uh, we're going to be heading into break, so please stay tuned. You're listening to The Journey, Stories of Crisis and Hope.
0: Life, your health, your network. You're listening to Voice America Health and Wellness. Crisis Services is Buffalo and Erie County, New York's safety net since 1968. We provide hope, safety, and immediate help 24 hours a day. If you need someone to talk to, or if you or a loved
2: one needs immediate help, our Crisis First Responders are available anytime at any hour. You're never alone. Crisis Services is here to help. Call 716-834-3131. 716-834-3131. Or visit us on the web
0: at crisisservices.org. Remember, you are never alone.
2: Call Crisis Services 24 hours a day at 716-834-3131.
1: Much of the time, the illnesses that people feel are simply symptoms, and they mask the root cause of what the real health problem is. You can take back control of your own health, starting with billionaire health care. This program is hosted by Ashley Black. Our program will introduce you to fascia, which is the knowledge of the living matrix. This bit of knowledge can bring you the health secrets that only the rich and famous have known. Until now. Listen Wednesdays at 1 p.m. Eastern, 10 a.m. Pacific on Voice America Health & Wellness.
0: Your life, your health, your network. You're listening to Voice America Health & Wellness.
1: You are listening to The Journey, stories of crisis and hope. We'd love to hear from you with any questions or comments about the show please send an email to jpirrovoiceamerica at gmail.com. That's J-P-I-R-R-O voiceamerica at gmail.com. Now, back to the journey. Here again is Jessica Piro.
2: Welcome back. My guest today is Greg Flett, who is the outreach coordinator for the Northeast Regional Children's Advocacy Center, and we're talking about the issue of child abuse. Um, and at the right before the break, we were starting to talk a little bit about responsibility of reporting um, on child abuse. So, Greg, can you talk a little bit about how a state child abuse hotline works? I think you know when somebody's calling in with suspected child abuse, what can they expect when they make that call?
3: Yeah, um, and and I'll use um, New York State as an example. I'm most familiar with the State Central Registry there in New York, but a lot of states, most states at this point have a hotline. It's a 24-7 number that anyone can call to make a report of suspected child abuse. And the way they work is they're they're staffed with trained um, trained staff who are screeners essentially to receive information about the allegations of abuse. And what they'll do is they'll take your call. They'll take some basic information. Um, your information is kept anonymous, uh, but they'll collect information about the child, about the scenario, what you saw, what you suspect, um, and they will. Basically, at that point, make a, um, a determination as to what needs to happen next, and it it, it could um, be that the suspicion you have doesn't rise to the level of a report. But oftentimes, uh, when they receive that information, what they'll pass it, what they'll do is they'll pass it on to a local child protective services unit. and CPS units are called different things in different states. Maybe DCF, DCFJ, or uh, but a, but a child protective service unit will receive that that information, and from there begin to conduct an investigation. Um, most hotlines go directly to um, a CPS unit within the county, and, and they'll go out from there to begin to see what they need to do to make sure a child is, is not being abused.
2: And so once the CPS worker, you know, child protective worker um, gets involved and, and reviews the case, uh, what are other systems that might become involved once there's more information that maybe there is a, a founded case, if you will, of, of abuse? Who, who else would become yeah. involved at that point?
3: Yeah, so the first the first one, the, the first other entity that's going to get involved is law enforcement, um, and it's an interesting distinction. Law enforcement gets involved when when abuse rises to the level of a criminal act. Um, and it's interesting that, that sometimes not all abuse rises to the level of a criminal act. Neglect doesn't rise to the level of a criminal act. But, but a lot of times, uh, physical abuse, certainly sexual abuse, will require the involvement of law enforcement. And they'll, they'll oftentimes partner with CPS and, and conduct a joint investigation to, uh, to get involved. And from there, depending on the allegations, depending on what they find in, in their first initial review of the reports, uh, they'll get involved with a child advocacy center. Um, and uh, a child advocacy center, that triggers a whole host of other actions and activities that, that will be there to support that child throughout the process.
2: So can we talk a little bit about what is a child advocacy center and maybe kind of the movement or the history of, of those centers being developed?
3: Sure, absolutely. And, and this is really where I find uh, you know, my most passion for the work is where mm-hmm. I got my start as a CAC. and. Um, uh, child advocacy centers go back to uh, 1985, um, and they they started in. Uh, they can trace them back to a, a single community in Huntsville, Alabama. There was a district attorney there named Bud Kramer, who was responsible for um, prosecuting child abuse cases. And what he found was that the cases that were coming to him were not very good cases. The, the, the cases and the information he had to prosecute uh, criminals were, were just not what he needed to prosecute it. And he started to explore a little bit and he found uh, a little bit of a bigger issue. He found that the kids and the families that were involved in these allegations, involved in these cases, weren't getting uh, the response, the services, the treatment that they needed. And the cases weren't being handled in a way that was in, you know, in the best interest of the child. Um, so he brought a group together, a, a team of uh, authority, a team of representatives from the, the local authority, so law enforcement, CPS, uh, certainly himself from the prosecutor's office, and they started to work together to figure out a way that they could investigate these cases um, to to keep the child's interest. Uh, in the forefront, uh, mm-hmm. and they came up with the CAC model. You can think of it as a one stop shopping approach, uh, to meeting the needs of a child. What used to happen with an abuse allegation was CPS might go out and take a statement from the child, and if it warranted, they would call law enforcement, and law enforcement might have that child come down to the police department to make a statement, and they would interview the child, and if it seemed like maybe they needed a a medical exam, they would take the child over to the hospital, and and a doctor or a nurse would ask the child what happened, and maybe perform a medical exam for that child, and and they might go then to the prosecutor's office if it was going to go for a prosecution, and uh, uh, an assistant district attorney would interview the child and at the end of the day what they found was the child was telling their story multiple times to multiple people mm-hmm. uh, in different settings some of which were not the most comfortable for a child um, and so mm-hmm. they took a step back and they they created this approach where they were going to bring the child to one facility that was warm and welcoming and they were going to put the the onus the burden on the adults to all come together and get the information they needed from that child in a way that was most appropriate, most beneficial for the case, most beneficial for the family. And they found that that also allowed them to connect those families to the services and interventions that they were going to need um, following the investigation to really help that child get back to where they needed to be in a safe uh, and healthy place.
2: So definitely, when you talk about the Child Advocacy Center setup, there, there's a lot of benefits to the model, um, especially for the child, but also for, I think, for the family or, or the caregivers that are involved. Um, I think, you know, you mentioned, too, like it helps to keep the child from having to tell their story over and over again, um, maybe is probably a little more child-friendly environment. Um, what are some other benefits that you see uh, a CAC provides for children and their families?
3: Yeah, I mean, uh, you know, there's a whole host of things. I think the collection of that interview is uh, is a big one. Not having to have a child tell their story over and over again really helps with reducing the tra- traumatization or the re-traumatization of that child. Um, but like you said, it's an opportunity there at the CAC then to connect that family with mental health, you know, trauma-based, trauma-informed counseling uh, with medical services where they can evaluate the child, do an exam if necessary, reassure that child that they are healthy and safe. Um, victim advocacy is a huge piece of child advocacy centers where um, a victim advocate might be assigned to a family and provide a case management type support for that child throughout the entire investigation, throughout the prosecution, even afterwards. Um, just being a resource, being a liaison, someone who uh can be in touch with that family, answer questions, connect them to services, uh really help them to get to, to get any kind of support that they might need uh as a result of the abuse that took place. Um so there's also a huge benefit for the teams involved. So, you know, the the real benefit in many ways from a multidisciplinary team approach from a CAC model is to help these team members get information in a way that's uh, cooperative, collaborative, reduces duplication of effort, um, really helps them to get their needs met as well. So there's almost two, two benefits to a CAC, one for the kids and the families and one for that team.
2: Absolutely. Absolutely. And I know you had mentioned as we've been talking the different partners that are involved. It's CPS, law enforcement, uh, victim advocacy, mental health providers, healthcare providers as well. Um, You know, what are some other benefits to those partners to get involved? Because a collaborative model can be very positive, but can be very challenging at some times as well. So, what are other benefits for a discipline to to be involved in this type of model?
3: Yeah, one of the real strong benefits that I've seen is this approach to uh, reviewing cases and working collaboratively on cases. Um, they really, when CACs and, and uh, multidisciplinary teams, we call them MDTs, when they work well together, they really do work well. They, they, they take it to another level where instead of one person trying to, you know, investigate a case, identify the needs of a family, um, you've got a whole team, you know, we say in the field that no single discipline can adequately meet the needs of a child abuse victim. Um, it really does take a whole host of disciplines. And when they come together in, in that way, they can really do a lot of things that they wouldn't be able to do individually. Um, just the benefits of information sharing, uh, collective problem solving, thinking about the needs of this family and the needs of the case um, in a group setting provides a lot of a lot of solutions, a lot of possibilities that might not have otherwise been considered. Um, and it removes some of the burden from the team. You know, if you can think of a law enforcement officer trying to investigate a, a, an abuse case entirely by himself... He may not or she may not have the resources to you know, connect that family to services, to identify mental health. It's not within the scope of their, their role. And so on a team, they can, they can refer that person to the victim advocate, knowing who that person is, how to connect them in a way that's going to be useful and, and helpful. Um, it really allows everybody to do their job so much better, um, and it results in better outcomes for these kids and these families
2: absolutely so I know part of your role is providing support and technical assistance to child advocacy centers um, in your work that you've you've done what what are some of the challenges um, that you've seen with a this kind of collaborative model of service um, because I'm sure it's a process for these teams to continue to to be successful you know it's in the work that they need to do as a team to, to work effectively but what are some challenges you've seen and, and maybe how how have you you work to address those?
3: Yeah, as you can imagine, bringing together eight or nine different disciplines, you know, individuals from each of these disciplines, um, each with their own roles, their responsibilities, their obligations to their own unique discipline, whether it be law enforcement or CPS or prosecution, bringing them together and having them work interactively and collaboratively, it presents all kinds of opportunities for challenge. Um, The primary one that we see is poor communication. Teams that don't find ways to communicate well have a lot of struggles and a lot of challenges. Um, Sometimes, you know, turf issues. Who's who's going to take the lead on a case? Whose role is is, you know, this part of the investigation and who's going to do that part of the investigation. And sometimes even egos get in the way where everybody, you know, everybody wants to do their job great. Everybody wants great outcomes for the kids, but making room for other people who have needs, you know, with regard to their roles on the team it can be it can be tumultuous at times. Um, we do a lot of work developing um, strong collaboration on teams, finding ways for teams to um, talk about the issues that they're facing, to address conflict in a way that's productive and useful. Um, um, and so we we spend a lot of time doing that with them. Um, even the, just the turnover. So one of the things that we know within yeah. social services, within CPS, within law enforcement is people move within the field. People you know come in and find it's not for them, and they move out. And so just keeping a team up to date with protocols, procedures, helping new people come onto the team to know what they need to do, what they need to um, be aware of, what their role is on the team can present all kinds of challenges. And so we spend a lot of time also working with teams about their orientation process, how to onboard, if you will, new members in a way that's going to be useful and helpful.
2: Absolutely. Now, have you seen this model kind of be replicated for other types of issues? You
3: know it's one of the it's one of the interesting things. Um, there's a few places where we've seen this team approach kind of um, look a little bit similar, but there's not many examples of it. Um, mm-hmm. Schools and hospitals are the two places that we see it primarily. So in, in within a school, you'll see um, for case planning for students, you'll see all kinds of teachers, social workers, therapists, uh, um, counselors coming together to think about you know how to benefit that child, how to create a plan for that child. We see it in medical um, hospital settings sometimes where nurses and social workers and doctors will come together to plan for a case. I struggle to think of another example though where i 've seen as many disciplines from such diverse um, uh, fields come together uh, it 's really a unique model
2: absolutely, and I think one of the you know, one of the things about the CAC model is like we talked about that the you know, keeping the, the needs of the child is a, is, is a priority um, and understanding as we started in this whole discussion when we began the show about the impact of the trauma that the, the children experience, depending on, regardless of the type of abuse, that trauma that they experience. And so that care that they get right after those incidences have such a long-term impact on their um, ability to trust and um, kind of a reestablish safety for themselves and, um, so, I mean, as as partners, we have such a, a significant role of of the work that we do. But then, on top of that, that reminder of the mission of a CAC um, that you know, really caring for the child and their um, success after experiencing a trauma like this is is really a critical mm-hmm. priority. So, what? Um so how does somebody find about, how do they find out about their local CAC? Where would they be able to, to find out if they have one? I mean, is there CACs across every state in the country, or
3: are we yeah, still developing
2: there's, there,
3: those? No, there CACs in every state in the country. At this okay. point, there's over, over 850 CACs throughout the nation. Wow. Um, um, and, yeah, the easiest way um, to find a CAC is to go to a website called the NationalChildrensAlliance.org. Uh, national Children's Alliance, or NCA, is a, um, a national organization that basically uh, connects all of the CACs. It sets 10 standards for accreditation, uh, which asks CACs to meet a certain minimum bar of best practices to ensure that they're providing the best services to kids, um, and right there on their website, there's actually a very, uh, a very good tool where you can, you can type in your zip code, and it'll pull up uh, a CAC within your community. Um, the goal, and we're still working on it. The goal is to get CACs in every community within this country, basically making it so any child who needs access to services at a CAC doesn't have to travel more than an hour um, to mm-hmm. to get mm-hmm. those services. New York State, um, the states of the Northeast that we serve. Um, are really doing a fine job meeting that. We're still growing some CACs in certain parts of the Northeast. But, um, but yeah, there's a lot of them out there. And so that's a great resource to look. The other thing you can do is check your local chapter. So each state has a chapter of CACs. In New York State, it's called the New York Children's Alliance uh, in other states, that they go by different names, but that chapter will likely have a website that you can look up online, um, and they'll have a directory to the CACs within your state. Also a great resource to call them and, and talk to them about what CAC options or uh, um, resources might be available near you.
2: Yeah, and I think it's important for parents to know that they, they that those those services exist, and if they're you know that they can go there, that they can reach out and and get that support for themselves and their families if they feel that there there is a need for for that type of service. So um, we're going to be heading into break in just in a few seconds here, but I just want to remind our listeners that um, if you have any questions or if you have some concerns about uh, a child in your life, we want you to reach out for help today. Um, and the chi- there's a website called Child. Childhelp.org. It has a lot of information uh, in in resources, but also there's a hotline that's 24 hours a day, which is 1-800 for a child. It's 1-800-422-4453. Again, 1-800-422-4453. So um, we have been talking a lot about the issue of child abuse, and, and more information to come in our next segment. So please stay tuned. You're listening to. The Journey, Stories of Crisis and Hope.
0: Opinions, options, answers. You're listening to Voice America Health & Wellness.
1: We are bombarded with information daily about happy life strategies, beauty products, and business success ideas. Are they truly going to make a change or just take the change out of your pocket? Tune in to Shelly's Show & Tell with host Shelly Hancock. Shelly will explore and recommend proven business ideas as well as show you how to use the law of attraction to create health, happiness, and a prosperous business. Listen Mondays at 1 p.m. Pacific Time, 4 p.m. Eastern Time on Voice America Health & Wellness. Transformational Healing includes energy medicine as well as hands-on healing. Tune in every week to Transformational Healing with Dr. Bonnie Morrow. If you want to know more about the business and science of energy fields, chakras, and the medical and spiritual community, join our expert guests as we work together to bring you closer to your personal health vision. Transformational Healing is heard live every Thursday at 12 noon Pacific Time, 3 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Health and Wellness
0: Channel. Opinions, options, answers. You're listening to Voice America Health & Wellness.
1: You are listening to The Journey, stories of crisis and hope. We'd love to hear from you with any questions or comments about the show. Please send an email to jpirrovoiceamerica at gmail.com. That's J-P-I-R-R-O. VoiceAmerica at gmail.com. Now, back to the journey. Here again is Jessica Pira.
2: Welcome back, everyone. My guest today is uh, Greg Flett, who is the outreach coordinator for the Northeast Regional Children's Advocacy Center. And we've been talking about the issue of child abuse. Um, And so uh, to start off this segment, Greg, I want to kind of go back to a piece we touched on in the first segment, is just to talk a little bit more about the issue of child sexual abuse, which is a big part of what CACs respond to and provide services for. So can we just share with our listeners maybe some of the statistics about child sexual? abuse?
3: Yeah, absolutely. I think one of the most staggering statistics um, comes from a study that showed that that as many as one in five children will be exposed to some type of sexual abuse before their 18th birthday. Um, And what we know is that less than 10% of those Victims will disclose the abuse while they're kids. Um, they'll they'll hide that secret and and um, take it with them long into adulthood. Um, one of the other misconceptions I think is is we're still battling this notion that child sexual abuse is perpetrated by strangers. Um, when in reality, eighty upwards of eighty percent of the cases of abuse take place by someone who is in a caretaker relationship, whether it be a parent or step parent, uh, aunt or an uncle or something along those lines. And and it really is. Um, uh, something that happens within families, um, something that happens um, frequently that that oftentimes goes unaddressed. Um, we also um, we also know that the the children who are abused, they're it's not a isolated experience. Oftentimes, mm-hmm. um, the pattern of grooming that takes place is really a process uh where a perpetrator will find and identify a a likely victim and when we think of likely victims you know they look for children who seem like they might not tell um, that they might not uh disclose it to anybody and what we know is that perpetrators are unfortunately very good at identifying these victims and they they prey on these victims and they slowly build confidence and trust with these victims and these children um, to lure them into a sense of security sometimes they'll identify a child who may have low self-esteem or is somewhat isolated and that's a great victim because if they're not talking to anybody already they're probably not going to talk to anybody after the abuse takes place right, um, right. and so they'll really put in the um, the The foundation of an abuse, uh, a grooming behavior, where they're going to lure that child into a, a bad situation.
2: And I think that the piece about understanding who the perpetrator is who the perpetrator is, is is really important because a lot of times, um, you know, people um, have family members or extended family or friends of the family and and those even though they're your acquaintances or you think that they're you know have your best interest in mind or you know they may they may be people that are potentially going could harm a child so you do have to think about that you can't ex- think that those aren't the people that potentially could harm your own children and I think that sometimes there's that misnomer of that stranger viewpoint like you mentioned that um, we do have to really um, pay attention to who who um, spends time with their children, um, their interactions, their behaviors, um, because, you know, that, like you said, that's what the types of perpetrators are looking for, those vulnerable children um, that they might be able to groom and and then potentially abuse. So, um, I think it's such an important message, you know, from an education standpoint. So, I appreciate you you definitely sharing that. So, can you tell us a little bit about the Northeast Regional Child Advocacy Mm -hmm. Center? And, you know, you touched on a a little bit of some of the states that you that you work with, but um, you know what specifically is the role of your organization?
3: Sure, yeah. We're one of four regional CACs, and and we're funded by the Department of Justice, the Office of uh, Juvenile Justice and Delinquency Prevention. Um, And we're tasked with supporting CACs and multidisciplinary teams at the local level. So we serve the entire Northeast. Um, There are three other regional CACs. that One covers the Midwest, one for the Western region, one for the Southern region. Um, But we're here in the Northeast, and and what we do is we work with um, the nine states – throughout the Northeast, New Jersey, Pennsylvania, all the way up through Maine um, to provide a, a lot of different services. Our main focus is helping the CACs and the multidisciplinary teams in those states to do the good work that they do um, to meet the needs of, of the childrens and family uh, that they serve. So we'll do team development training. We'll uh, connect uh, CACs to outside training, whether it be for forensic interviewing, or we'll do victim advocacy training. We'll help teams get um, uh, back on track sometimes. If they have uh, changes or conflict on the team that gets them off track, for, away from that MDT model, we'll help to kind of – do whatever we can to refocus their efforts. Sometimes that's strategic planning. Sometimes that's um, team development. We spend a lot of time working with teams around the standards of accreditation and, and just making sure that they're meeting those minimum standards to, to to provide services in a way that's going to be in the best interest of the children and the family within the community. Uh, so we do a lot of stuff. And, and the nice part is uh, we're able to be a little bit um, – Um, We're able to work in a a capacity that is tailored to the needs of that community. So we're happy to find or identify resources if we don't have them and bring them in. We're happy to create trainings if they don't exist, um, really to be flexible and dynamic and, and meet the needs of whatever the community we're hoping to serve.
2: Absolutely. Now, Greg, we did have a question that came in and I, I don't know um, information on this. I'm wondering if you, you might be able to share or maybe we can um, post it later in some capacity. But, it you know, obviously this being an Internet uh, uh, talk radio show, it's not only national, but we do have international listeners as well. Is there resources that for international listeners? Um, you know, locations that either to help establish a child advocacy center, or is there any type of international organization that helps focus on child abuse that people could reach out to? Yeah,
3: absolutely. Um, so uh, there are CACs throughout the world, throughout the, the, um, throughout, uh, internationally. Uh, I, I believe there's CACs in 25 different countries at this point. Um, and you can reach out to uh, two entities here in the U.S. The, the National Children's Alliance can help with information about developing CACs, as well as the National Children's Advocacy Center, and that's that center that started down in Huntsville, Alabama. Um, they do a lot of work internationally helping to develop CACs abroad. Um, there's also a, a, an organization called IPSCAN, the International Society for the Prevention of Child Abuse and Neglect, if I'm, if I'm getting that right. Um, and they've got great resources online that you can go and get information about. Um, so, yeah, it's definitely something that um, the the movement and the model of CACs is spreading well beyond the U.S., and, and I know that they have them in a lot of different other countries at this point.
2: Great. Well, thank you for sharing that. That's, that's very helpful. So, you know, I just want to take a, a few minutes to talk about kind of the roles that communities can play in helping to protect to protect children. So we've been talking about the CAC model and the resources after an incident happens or after abuse happens. But what are some things communities can do to help protect children from abuse even occurring? Do you have any suggestions or recommendations?
3: Yeah, absolutely. I think the first thing that that community members and everybody can do is be aware. Um, just be aware that child abuse happens. It happens in every community. It happens, you know, throughout all parts of the U.S. and, and every um, and every piece of society. Uh, and be aware that it has profound impacts on the life of a child and 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 then throughout the rest of their life. Um, the one thing that we really tell tell caregivers, tell parents, tell everybody is to be present, to be engaged, and be involved in the life of a child. Um, you know, on a, on a very micro scale, having good communication and trust between a child and a caregiver, a child and a parent, has long been one of the ways that is, that is suggested to be the the primary factor in deterring a child from being abused. Um, kids who have open communication with adults and will tell them when something bad has happened or they think something bad has happened are less likely to be victims. Um, so awareness, I think, is, is a big thing that we're really pushing lately. And there's some trainings, there's national trainings out there. There's a, a training called Darkness to Light or Stewards to Children that, that really educates people on how to be vigilant, how to be aware, how to work in child-friendly facilities that are responsible for, for caring for kids, nursery schools, daycare centers and have them operate in a way that is going to, you know, just very easily be aware of, of, of child abuse, what it is, and, and where it might be present. Um, and that is something that, that we can all be kind of vigilant for, um, to, to keep our eyes open and be aware that it takes place and, and not try to ignore an issue like that. Um, and at a community level, I think what you can do is, you can be engaged with your CAC as well to be knowledgeable about about your advocacy centers in your community, reach out to them for information, ask them to do trainings, which a lot of them do, um, support them in any way you can, whether it be volunteering or donations or anything like that. Um, I, I think as we continue to grow the CACs in, in this country, we will see a, a much more... Um, thorough uh, response to child abuse, if you will, and everybody will be on the same page about it, and and kind of the awareness will increase. At least that's our hope.
2: Absolutely. And, you know, I guess a question I have is, um, you know, if there's parents who are listening in today who are struggling, maybe who have um, been abusive towards their children, what are resources that parents can reach out and feel uh, safe to reach out? Because I know it's it's a frightening space for a parent to be in if they're concerned that they might lose their children. Um, and so is there other resources or is there websites that you could share for parents to, to reach out to? I know the childhelp.org has some great resources on it as well, but I'm just curious if there's other um, you know, resources out there that are specifically for parents that might want to learn more on what they can do to help themselves in order to protect their children.
3: Yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, the one I mentioned, stewards to uh, stewards for children, or, or darkness to light. It kind of goes by both names as a great resource. But but honestly, I would I would refer people to their local CAC. Reach out to your CAC. They're there for just for not just uh, investigations and response, but they're there as a resource within the community. A lot of CACs will um, they have staff who will go out to. Um, schools, PTA meetings, community centers, and do education about, you know, what their role is about child abuse within the community, what they need to know um, right there in their own communities. And I think doing it on a local level like that really does make it real and really helps to solidify the fact that this is something that's happening. And, And they're a great resource for help for parents who have questions or concerns. It can be daunting to call law enforcement or CPS with a question about child abuse for fear that they might trigger a response that you're not ready for. Um, right. CACs, you know, they're mandated reporters, so they will make a report if they need to, but they're also there to just answer questions to help, you know, maybe clarify a situation or, or, you know, share resources or services, um, steer people in the right direction. Um, yeah.
2: That's great. Yeah. So, why don't we share? Um, could you share your your contact information, the website for your um, your center? You know, your office, and um, so that if people are interested in learning more about the Northeast Regional uh, Child Advocacy Center, they can check you out as well.
3: Yeah, absolutely. We are at NRCAC. Dot org, um, And you can go to our website. There's lots of information on there. There's contact information. So I am just one of the staff at NRCAC. We've got an executive director who works out of the Philadelphia Children's Alliance. It's a great resource down there in Philly. Um, we have a project director who is in Pennsylvania, and then three more outreach coordinators throughout the Northeast. And so we're kind of spread around, ready to be available to teams, to CACs, to communities, Um, especially communities that don't have CACs. So if you're out there and you're thinking about starting a a CAC and you want some resources, feel free to reach out to us. We're happy to be there as a resource and a support and um, and can kind of help to get you connected if you need.
2: Absolutely. And I think that, you know, one of the things to just leave our listeners with today is is that we all have a role in, in helping to support um, ending child abuse in our communities, but also helping to get children linked to services and support if needed. So, you know, a message we are sharing with you today is your CAC, your Child Advocacy Center, and your community is really a great resource for you to, to reach out to. And I just want to remind everybody as well that um, there's, for national information, you could go to Child Health help.org. Um, that website has a lot of different resources as well. And, and we've been giving out the number for them as well, which is one 800 for a child which is one eight hundred four two two four four five three. 422 4453 Again, 1-800-422-4453. So Greg, I want to thank you so much for for joining me today. I appreciate your your insight and your expertise to kind of help share the message uh, with our community, with our nation um, about ending child abuse. So I want to thank everyone for tuning in and joining me for another episode of The Journey, Stories of Crisis and Hope. Please join me every week Tuesday at 8 a.m. Pacific Time, 11 a.m. Eastern Time. And again, if you have any questions or comments about the show, please email me at jpirovoiceamerica at gmail.com. So thank you so much for tuning in and do your part this week to provide hope to others.
1: Thank you for tuning in to The Journey, Stories of Crisis and Hope. Please join your host, Jessica Piro for another edition of the program next Tuesday at 8 a.m. Pacific Time and 11 a.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. We'll see you here next week.